Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, the Dean of the Divinity School and usually the host, but today a special host for a special series on faith, work, and economics, Dr. Mark Devine. Welcome to today's Beeson podcast. I'm Mark Devine, a professor here at Beeson, and we're so pleased to welcome our guest today, Tom Nelson. Uh, Tom Nelson comes to us from Leewood, Kansas. It's in the greater Kansas City area uh, where he is pastor of Christ Community Church, a church that he planted some 25 years ago, a congregation that's grown to four campuses uh, in the greater Kansas City area in the greater Kansas City area. Uh, He's author of three books, or four books, three books, I think, and particularly today uh, we're focusing on his book, Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. Tom, it's so uh, good to have you with us today. We welcome you. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we explore more of what uh, you've been exploring yourself uh, on the intersection of work and faith. Yeah, Mark, it's uh, just great to be with you, and thank you for your warm Southern hospitality. I've enjoyed being here, and uh, I'm delighted to have a conversation with you today about something that's really important. Uh, yeah, I have uh, my greatest claim to fame is my bride of almost 32 years, Liz, and I have two children, Schaefer and Sarah, and uh, the Lord has uh, really blessed my life. And I have a wonderful parish, as you mentioned, that I love and get to serve. So it's great to be with you today. Well, I already know that uh, this focus on uh, faith and work for you as a pastor uh, has not always been there, at least not the way it is now. And so a change took place. How how did it happen that you came uh, to focus on work, the work uh, that your congregants do uh, in this, this new and intense way? Well, I think the story of uh, all of our lives as Christians is grace and uh I'm glad that God extended grace to me. Uh, Starting on as a pastor, I spent the majority of my time equipping my congregation to do what they're called to do the minority of their life. And I came to the point of realizing from theological conviction, as well as longing to be a faithful pastor, is that I needed to spend more time equipping people for Monday. Um, and so that that has led to massive changes in how I see the pastorate in, in proper uh, paradigm, as well as uh, it's really made a huge difference in our congregation. Our congregation is much more uh, committed to live the life of the gospel in every nook and cranny of life. So it's been a massive transformation by God's grace. The Lord gives us a second chance, sometimes more and more. Um, and so there has been a big change, and it's changed my life, my pastoral practice, profoundly changed the culture of Christ's community. One of the things that I appreciate about your book is that you do spend a lot of time exploring how your uh, theology of work uh, has resulted in changes in your preaching and programming at your church and liturgy and many, really every, every nook and cranny of church life. But I noticed that you, you lay a, a a theological foundation first before you move uh, to the practical consequences. And so uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the theology of work uh, that, that then seems to compel changes in how, how we live out our, our life of discipleship uh, following Jesus Christ. Yeah, Mark, that's such a good question and insight you have because 
I think for most pastors, if people are pastors or preparing to be in pastoral vocational kind of work, the tendency is to sort of jump on the latest bandwagon, you know, the latest fad. Um, lots of things come at us as pastors, and you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Um, and often it's so that you can grow a bigger church or be successful. And there's nothing wrong with a bigger church or be, quote, successful, but it has to stem our lives, our practice, our churches from a theological robustness that uh, encounters the whole biblical text from Genesis to Revelation. So, yeah, we need to begin with a robust theology. And when we start with creation, all the way from creation, fall, redemption, consummation, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, what we begin to see is a very central thread of vocational faithfulness. Um, and that theology is not only what sustains our heart, our mind, our hands, but shapes a theological vision of local church ministry in the world. So we do need to begin with theology, and we need to have a robust theology. And what I often say is that we need to not just see what we know, this is the danger of all of us, but to really know what we see in the text. And if we look carefully and observe carefully and mind the sacred text from Genesis to Revelation, it is overwhelming that work is not incidental to the Imago Dei or the Missio Dei. It is integral to it. So it's integral to the story. I was also interested and in, in, uh, very much um, welcoming of how you relate the theology of work or really draw your theology of work out of sort of the, the major historic uh, dimensions of, of theology or, you know, pieces of the systematic spectrum of doctrine like creation and incarnation. Can you say a word about how the theology work of work is undergirded by, by these two great doctrines? Yeah, it's, uh, creation is foundational. The, I always say we've got to pay close attention to the bookends, both creation and consummation. And then we pay very close attention to the early chapters of Genesis, the last chapters of Revelation, the richness of the middle of the story, redemption of Christ and the gospel, just come into HD living color. Uh, if we mine creation, Genesis 1 through 3, let's just start with the foundation, the beginning of the story. What we see is we have a God who presents himself as a worker, that creation itself before sin entered the world, integral to that storyline is we were designed with work in mind. Um, and that is fundamental to how we fit into the created order. And then we hit Genesis 3, of course, that disintegration of the fall shapes and profoundly disrupts not only our procreativity of multiplication, but also productivity. Um, so creation, mining original creation, sets God's trajectory of a story. It sets how we fit into the created order, and it is vital to understand, to mine it. And then we come to incarnation, Mark. Even just a quick word about Jesus. We often miss the hidden years. Theologians call them the hidden years, from 12 to about 30, um, when Jesus spends the vast majority of his time with holy sweat on his brow, working, making things as a carpenter, the word, Greek word is tecton, a builder or architect. And we miss the significance of what it meant for the Son of God in God's redemptive story for all creation to be a worker. The majority of Jesus' human incarnation time was making things, serving difficult customers. Um, and that shapes how we understand the dignity of work. It connects Sunday to Monday, and it highlights his glorious redemption on the cross. Uh, one line in your, in your book really jumped out at me. I'm sure I'll steal it. And that is, uh, you say, Jesus is more, <laughs> he's more than a carpenter, but he's not 
less. And I think it uh, it's certainly been very, very enriching of my own preaching to think about this and uh, reflect on uh, how uh, Jesus' work uh, is necessary. His work as a carpenter is necessary for him to be who he needed to be when he died on the cross in order to redeem the whole of human life. It's a very, very rich uh, and I think illuminative uh, uh thought uh, when we come uh, to Holy Scripture. Um, people people love their work. Some of them do, but a lot of folks seem to hate their work. Um, uh, when I look at, uh, as a pastor, and I, I listen to those I preach to, a lot of them, their main thought about work, and even mine as a, as a worker in the cotton mill, as a child, as a teenager, my first thought about work is to somehow get out of it. Um, has something gone wrong with work? I think that's a common experience, Mark. I mean, it's like, you know, we think about language in our culture like, thank God it's Friday or live for the weekend. Or Johnny Paycheck's great country western song, you know, take this job and shove it. And there's a certain aspect of that for all of our lives because whether we're a stay-at-home spouse, whether we're a CEO, whether we're um, working in a factory, whatever it is, all work is a mixed bag, theologically. I mean, we live post-Genesis 3. So the workplace, Jesus' workplace, was filled with both, right? Of good, bad, evil, and ugly. I mean, can you imagine Jesus waiting on some grumpy customer that didn't like what he had made? I mean, this is just part of life. So I think we just have to realize that if we're going to understand our work, it's always a mixed bag. Uh, and, and then to understand that as Christians... A big part of our formation in Christ is what we do every day. So our work, for good and bad, forms us into Christ-likeness. So we have to have a good theology of suffering. If we don't have a good theology of suffering, then we are going to hate our work. Uh, but we can see our work as being transformative, that God has placed us right there, not only to proclaim the gospel, to live the gospel, to become more like Jesus. There's a great commercial that the Jeep crew uh, car makers say. And I love this because I don't know if they're thinking theologically, but it says, the, it says the things we make, make us. And what we do the majority of our time, whatever our hands are called to do, working on a computer, serving in a mill, whatever it is, is that the majority of our time is spent in serving others in work. And that is the primary way or a primary way we are conformed into Christ likeness. So it's a huge part of our spiritual formation. What about competition? Competition shapes uh, much of the work that is done, uh, and for some, it's the really dominant feature of their exertion in work and of the workplace that they inhabit. Does competition fit or not within a biblically informed understanding of work? Yeah, I think it's, it's a great question, and I think it uh, demands careful um, definition. If we think of competition in sort of a Darwinian world, uh, an atheistic Darwinian world of dog-eat-dog, a zero-sum game of survival of the fittest, the biggest and best wins from a Nietzschean view of power, then it's outside the bounds of the Christian faith. If we think of competition as a mutual sharpening, you think of Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, you know, iron sharpens iron, so does one sharpen another. There's a goodness of how we're designed to help each other be better. And I think that's where competition in the workplace, in whatever place we are, 
is so huge. We need to redefine work biblically from what we often think is work is so tied to compensation or remuneration. Work fundamentally from Genesis 2.15 is contribution to the common good and to God's good world. So how do I contribute to God's good world for the good of others? And then competition fits a grander story. It's not an end to my own gain. It's me helping serve the common good and cultivating blessing from the creator order. So it depends on how we define competition. I want us to shift now uh, to some more practical concerns, but I do commend your book to our our readers, the the book Work Matters, for more exploration of the theological richness that they will find there and and uh, and that is very much necessary to to uh, legitimize uh, all all of the practical uh, outworkings of this but how has uh, the way uh, you think about your congregation and the way uh, you seek to lead your congregation to do church how has that been changed uh, and shaped by your theology of work I think it's a really important question, Mark, because all of us want to be faithful. If we're in the church as a congregant leader or a clergy leader, we want the church to flourish. Um, and I think several things real quickly. One is the first thing that has changed and continues to change is our language changed. Uh, we talk about being language police at Christ Community as leaders because language is one of the most important artifacts of culture. And often we use language we don't even, we're not even aware of. We're so close to it, we don't know what it communicates to people. So I think first and foremost, if we have a rich theology of vocation that connects Sunday to Monday, that affirms the equality of all work done unto God, uh, whether it's the work of the priest, as Martin Luther said, or the work of the maid, they are equal before God. If we understand that, then the language we use is not dichotomous. It's not bifurcated. It's not elevated to the sacred or secular, or here's the, here's the high calling of the pastor and the lower calling of the congregant. We don't use laity, for example, because there's a, a long historical understanding of laity as being ignorant. It's if you look at the dictionary level, it's someone who doesn't know, they're a layman. They have a layman view. So language, I'm saying what, what we hear about full-time Christian work, non-full-time Christian, we don't use that language. So I'd say, first of all, language. And we could talk a lot about that, but language sets your culture. And so how we communicate language that is good language is important. That's the first thing. What about uh, the the worship experience? How has the worship experience itself been impacted by this this insight about work? Yeah, it does change. Not only um, we talk about connecting Sunday to Monday, that the pastors on our team understand the Monday world. So we want to help congregants when they're in a Sunday morning experience or a Sunday night or wherever your worship service is, is to help them connect the gospel to all of life. So we not only want to connect Sunday to Monday, this language, we want to connect Monday back into Sunday. And both are important for integrity. So when people come to the worship service, there are certain things that they will experience. They might experience an iconography of banners or something that give the whole picture redemption, not just the redemption of souls, that creation matters, the planet matters. I mean, in an art and banner. So their iconography, their space is going to remind them of the fullness of the gospel. The worship order service, we could talk maybe more about what that would look like, but it would change in terms of hymnody. It would change in terms of uh, the kind of language of the hymns. It would change in terms of pastoral prayer, what is said, what is focused. It would change in terms of messages. It would change in terms of benedictions and commissioning. Uh, we often commission people as they leave in the benediction to be the church as they go out in their various vocations. Mm-hmm. So people would pick up 
pretty quickly language and flow that the clergy leaders understand the importance of their world Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. How old were you when you you planted uh, Christ Community Church? Oh, that's state secret. Okay. But I was much younger then, 25 years ago. Yeah, so, so, you know, you probably really don't know anything about – the work that your congregants do, and a lot, a lot of ministry types, they don't know much about it. Are you doing anything to educate yourself about the work of uh, those whose work you now are all pumped up to affirm in these new ways? Yeah, we do very intentionally. If, if we love others, we walk in their shoes. Uh, we learn their language. We learn their life. So it's out of love for our congregation and for God and the mission of the world that we take an interest. The first thing I'd say is we want to have a humble posture of learning from everyone. Uh, pastors often have a imperious posture. I mean, let's just be honest that we're better. We have it more figured out. So, uh, yes, we would want to be learning um, from everyone. Our reading patterns would be different. I read the Atlantic, Economist, Wall Street Journal, whatever it is, so that I'm conversant with their world. Uh, we do marketplace visits. Um, yes, we want to learn what their world is like. And so pastors on our team have a honest interest uh, in the parishioner's world, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What about Labor Day? That seems to be just sticking up there, inviting you to kind of swat the, the, the softball off the tee there. Yeah, I mean, Labor Day is something in our culture. It's just this wonderful window. It's an on-ramp to a, a rich theology of vocation. So yeah, Labor Day, we often, it's not always the same, but we want to weave it through all our services and all our messages. But Labor Day is a time you don't want to miss, right? The ball's teed up for us, using that metaphor. So yeah, here's an example of a Labor Day service. Again, we have a little variety with each campus, but we did a couple years ago, which can be a flow, what it might look like. So we started out with hymnodine, a call to worship that tied into the work of our hands and the importance of all of creation. We had a pastoral prayer that highlighted vocations and praying for vocations. Uh, we had a video testimony of someone, this has to be a blue collar worker, sharing how the gospels transformed his workplace, the work, and himself. How the gospel changes all of it. So there's a video testimony. I gave a message on Exodus 31, which is the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned to empower a person. In Exodus 31, it's Bezalel and Eliab, which is amazing. People think of the spirit-filled life. They very seldom think of what they do every day. But the first indication of a spirit-filled life is for someone to do work in Exodus 31. So I did a short message on the spirit-filled work from Exodus. Okay, Then I had two of our leaders. One was a former executive, but she's a stay-at-home mom now, and an architect sit on a stool for 15 minutes, and I interviewed them. Now, in our culture, we can do that. Um, And the congregation was just riveted to them about their world. Um, so it gives you an idea. In the benediction, for example, we would use, in this case, I think we use Psalm 9017, Lord, confirm the work of our hands. So we emphasize the importance of work every day. This is an example of a Labor Day service. I know that your your interests have expanded beyond faith and work, and I think out of faith and work, you're, you're interested also in uh, economic well-being, human flourishing uh, generally. How, how do... F- faith and work connect to these these wider and seemingly uh, more abstract notions of human flourishing and economic well-being? Yeah, this is a really important question. And um, if faith and work in our minds are planets apart, faith, work, and economics are probably like solar systems apart in our mind. Um, 
But it's really unfortunate that that's the case. And so what I think we need to begin to think about is, from a theological standpoint, that they really are not that far from each other. There's a seamless fabric if we understand theology. Economics, we get the word economics from oikonomia, which is really a Greek combination word of household stewardship. It's about stewardship. And it's not just about supply and demand curves. It's not just about a Leffler curve. I mean, economics, if we understand scripture, is an important part of human flourishing and the common good. We all contribute to the common good. Let me just say a couple things about that very quickly. One is, if we understand the richness of creation, let's just take Genesis 1 and 2, that we were created with work in mind, that work is fundamentally contribution to the common good, not to exercise this dominion. So if we understand that, we also understand that we were created with community in mind. The minute Eve comes on the scene, there's an oikonomia, there's an economic. There's a value brought to a collaboration. So you have individual contribution, but we were created as a collective, collaborative, collaborative, right? So the creation imprint is deeply embedded in economics and human flourishing. And just one little quick example is we, we uh, often uh, respond to Luke 10. This is a classic example. Luke 10, Jesus spoke a lot about faith and work and economics. And in Luke 10, we have the great parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that, Mark? I mean, it's just a very, and it's, the response is, who's my neighbor? Okay, and the, the idea of the great commandment comes out of the Old Testament, and reformers understood the great commandment, loving God our neighbor as intersected with work. I mean, we often think of loving my neighbor as taking them soup when they're sick. That's a good thing. But if we understand the theology, the intersection of loving God and loving my neighbor is work. So Jesus responds to this question, who's my neighbor, with the Good Samaritan story. Remember, the guy's robbed, which is an interesting economic reality. He's robbed, which is an injustice of economics. He does not miss that. He starts with someone being robbed. And the Good Samaritan goes to this person's aid, right? And simply is that he not only has compassion, that's that Greek word, but what we miss is that he takes him to the inn and he pays, puts down his visa card and pays for this guy his stay and his recovery. Well, what does that say? That to be a good neighbor requires two things. Christ-like compassion, but also economic capacity. There's just one example of how economic capacity matters. That triggers in my mind uh, just the the large and complicated uh, topic of, of poverty. Uh, coming out of my uh, formation at the master's level, the MDiv uh, degree, and reflecting back on it, it seems that two options were put before me. Uh, one was the prosperity gospel, by which I mean something like, you know, it is God's will for all of his children to be healthy and wealthy now. And on the other hand, though, was uh, a kind of um, uh, quasi-glamorization of simple life and sometimes even poverty and a view of wealth and even prosperity, mainly in terms of its it, the spiritual threat that it that it poses. Um, I've also noticed that uh, poor people, I don't know, they seem less fascinated with poverty than those those who are not. Is there a third way? What about these options? Well, again, Mark, you're raising a very complex question. And Peter Brown, who's a former scholar at Princeton, just wrote a book not long ago called Through the Eye of the Needle, and it surveys the first 500 years of how the Christian church viewed wealth. It's a large tome. It's viewed as the most definitive work in this area. 
And you have two streams, two very streams of seeing wealth as is fundamentally incompatible with Christian goodness um, and almost a glorification of simplicity or poverty. So I, I'm just saying it is a, it is a, those two threads are woven into the history of the Christian church. And um, I think we need to recognize that. So you've articulated it very well. And uh, I think what I would just say, it's a very complex question, but I don't see poverty um, as fundamentally in Scripture, or Jesus as being glamorous. Now, there's different kinds of poverty. And again, we need to make sure that the Scriptures teach spiritual poverty, which is the ultimate impoverishment, right? Social poverty, um, and then economic, or, or let's just use in, income or wealth poverty. So it's a very complex question, and I think the Scriptures give a wonderful picture of what we'd what I'd call a, a healthy rhythm of accountability, that Human dignity is important. You think about Ruth gleaning. I mean, this idea of a handout of slothfulness and idleness is just abhorrent to the scriptures. Paul will say, Rabbi Paul will say, and I mean, this is stunning, right? In Second Thessalonians chapter, if someone's unwilling, not unable, unwilling to work, they shouldn't eat. Why in the world would he say that? He knows the story because we were created to work. So human dignity and work go hand in hand. And, and so that's important, not just to always say a handout, you know, but a hand up. So we need to affirm the dignity of work and people's contribution. And then I think we need to think through generosity, and this is a whole issue of generosity, and justice and fairness to help people deal with systemic issues that keep them from flourishing. But it's a very complex question. It's not a simple one. I know you're aware of John Schneider's book, The Good of Affluence. That book... Um uh, helped me think very differently about these issues because he tries very, uh, you know, his his aim is 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 uh, to uh, give a thumbs down to the prosperity gospel as I've already articulated it. But on the other hand, uh, he looks at a paradigm that is shaped by he argues viewing the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and uh, punctuated by these sort of stackpole acts of God that move from from the garden. It is not the simple life. It's a flourishing life. It's an abundant life to the promised land itself and then to the messianic banquet and the coming of a new heaven and a new earth where we walk on, on, on gold. And uh, it really treats uh, poverty as a dimension of the suffering that is brought on by the fall. And therefore, uh, to be uh, combated, uh, of course, we rejoice that it, it suffering is made to serve God's purposes of redemption, but that when that redemption is complete, uh, all the suffering's gone, including the poverty. How do you, how do you respond to Schneider's uh, very, I, think, I found it a provocative reading of Scripture? Yeah, I'm very grateful for the book. Um, because I think it adds a needed corrective. Um, and remember I mentioned that there are these streams in the Christian faith in our history that I think miss um, the importance of a more healthy uh, balance, kind of use that word. So yeah, I think Schneider's work is really important. And one of the things that I hear a lot, I just say is that people often have a reductionistic view of saying that people who have a lot of wealth are greedy or materialistic. And that has nothing to do, or very little to do, can I use, with how much we have is what has us. I mean, at every level of economic reality, greed, materialism, all the issues of sin affect all of us. And those who have been given much, 
again, biblically are what? Required with much. And, and, and Paul will say to Timothy, to, as a pastor, those who are rich in this world, those who have a lot, encourage them to be generous, but not condemn them for their wealth. We're so glad uh, to have you today, uh, Tom. I appreciate so much and thank God for the way he has used you, uh, not only in Leewood, Kansas, at Christ Community Church, but uh, through the wider platform that you've gained in various ways, not least of all this marvelous book, Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. I uh, commend it to our readers, and we're so grateful to have you and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.